0: Hello and welcome. We're so glad that you're here today. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for the gift you've given us of spending this time as we consider what God has made known that we can glorify him better in Jesus our Lord. My name is Ethan. And I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples in Los Angeles, California. And if there's any way we can be of service, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know how we can benefit you in your faith. Please reach out to us at Beneathchurchofchrist.org, on social media, at Facebook, or on Twitter or Instagram. Please feel free to comment where you found us here. As Christians, one of the most important things that we need to keep in mind is, what are we supposed to do in our faith, right? Uh, A lot of times we talk so much about becoming a Christian and why it's so important to be a Christian and why it's so important to hear the Word of God to believe that Jesus is the Christ, to confess Jesus before one another, to repent of our sins and to be baptized, uh, that we forget about everything that comes afterward. And so many have come to hear the original message, right, the, the, the need to become Christians, and after that they kind of just fade away because there was no grounding, there was no understanding that baptism is but the beginning, it is not the end. The Apostle Paul wrote a beautiful letter to the Roman Christians. And in that letter, he had laid out in expansive detail how all had fallen prey to sin, and that all needed to be justified by faith if they were going to be saved. How Jesus, and all that Jesus accomplished, has allowed us to be justified by faith. How when we are baptized into Christ, we Uh, die to sin so we can live in him. He talked a lot about the law and how the law imprisons us under sin, but how we are freed in Jesus and the great encouragement that we can derive from understanding that we are now walking by the Spirit, that we have been adopted into the family of God, that we have the hope of redemption, that the subjection to bondage that the creation has experienced will be lifted one day and the creation will have freedom and we will have freedom when we receive the redemption of our body in the resurrection. That in the midst of great trial and distress, we can keep our confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that God was not proving faithless to Israel when he sent his son to die and now opened up the covenant that all may go in. That he proved faithful to his promises and proved faithful to what he was accomplishing in Jesus. He has kind of laid out for us a whole theology, a whole Christology of what's going on. And then he turns in the beginning of chapter 12 and he begins drawing the conclusions. Because of everything that God has done for us in Jesus, because of all that is now true of what God has accomplished, now what? Now what? Now what is what he begins to answer in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is Paul trying to tell us here in Romans 12, 1 and 2? How can we glorify God in our lives? Let us explore the passage, and of course, I always love to know what you think. Please reach out and let us know in the comments. So he appeals to them, as fellow Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, by the mercies of God, recognizing everything that we have in our comes from God, can only be empowered by God, and without God we would be nothing. To present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God. Now, when the word sacrifice is mentioned, what comes to mind? Uh, What should come to mind, what came to mind to uh, Paul's audience, was what we find in the Old Covenant, in, in, in the law, and quite frankly, in the pagan world as well. A sacrifice is when you take an animal and you bring it to a temple and it is sacrificed in honor of God. Uh, to uh, atone for sin, if it's a sin offering, uh, maybe as a thank offering, as a peace offering, uh, many different kinds of offerings going on there, even in the Old Covenant. And so the idea is that you're giving up that animal, the animal which was precious to you, because animals uh, were very precious in those days. Uh, You would have lived on its milk or the weight of the work that it would do for you, and um, you didn't eat meat a lot, you didn't have a lot of opportunities to share in that kind of thing, and so this was a very special moment. And so that's where we get the idea that Jesus becomes our sacrifice. Yes, it's foreshadowed in Isaiah 53 and the main message of the gospel, right? Jesus has been the true lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice. He did not know sin and yet uh, suffered because of sin on the cross. And so this is how we get the definition of sacrifice now from Webster's Dictionary. To suffer the loss of, to give up, to renounce, to injure, or to destroy, especially for an ideal belief or end. And that's the way we now really use sacrifice, right? We use it to say that I'm sacrificing my time, my energy. I'm suffering loss. I'm giving this up for somebody or something. And so what Paul's saying here is that we are to suffer loss for God. Now, he's talking about this in a very compelling way. The audience would be very familiar with the idea of offering animals. Roman Christians would have done that whether they came out of paganism or out of Judaism. But he, he's talking about being a living and holy sacrifice. Uh, to be a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, is a continual thing, right? Once you've offered that animal once, it's been offered. Once that throat's been cut, uh, the blood comes out and you can't put it back in there. You can't offer that animal again. But we are to consider ourselves as continual sacrifices. That's what's really going on there that living sacrifice. That we're constantly suffering a loss of, constantly pouring ourselves out for God and for his purposes. In a real way, Paul is saying here that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our strength, all our soul, and all of our might. From Deuteronomy and from Jesus' own words. What that love for God looks like is that pouring out of ourselves. And we know this because God has loved us. In 1 John 4, Paul make, John makes it clear Excuse me, that we only know love because he first loved us. And how did he show love for us? He uh, sent Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins, that he suffered loss through Jesus, and Jesus suffered great loss, that we could be reconciled to God, that we could have this standing before him. And God continually suffers loss because he continues to pour himself out in love Uh, providing us what we need, being willing to forgive of our sins, uh, working through us. All of these things he is doing in love and involves the suffering of loss, uh, that he would be glorified. And so we have seen what sacrifice looks like from what God has done for us in Jesus. And that now empowers us to love God as God has loved us by pouring ourselves out for God and for his purposes and Philippians 2, that's the mindset we're supposed to have and that mindset tells us that if we have suffered like him, we will receive the exaltation he received, that God is willing to give us glory beyond our imagination if we suffer in the way of his Son. So, it's very abstract, right? How does that suffering the loss of take place? What does it look like? Well, any time that we give up something for Jesus or we suffer the loss for the purposes of God, or sacrificing for God. We're going to see what that begins to look like a little bit. When we look at verse two and beyond a little bit, uh, but we can look at different domains of our life. We can sacrifice with time. And this is one of those things that is true of all of us. It doesn't matter how much you have in the bank account. We all have the same amount of time in a day. We all have 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 or certain years, 366 days a year, right? And so it doesn't matter anything else about us. We all have that time. And unfortunately, all too often in the Christian faith, we can very easily compartmentalize Christianity to be about the assembly. And it's not to say the assembly isn't important, but when you look at the amount of time that you spend in life, you start breaking down in percentages, if you um, are there on Sunday and assemble with the saints, you're spending about 2% of your week participating in the faith with your fellow Christians. Now, comparing that to if you take a decent amount of time to eat, your theoretical eight hours of sleep, right, and work, that's over 63% of your time. And look, we need to sleep. Uh, We have been commanded that we should work. Uh, We should spend some of our time uh, with fellow uh, family members and friends and Christians and glorifying God in those ways, absolutely. And there are certainly ways in which we can glorify God in that time. But do you think it's really sufficient to give only 2% of your time to God and say that you have really suffered the loss of time, right? Um, imagine if that had gone back, that God only was willing to suffer about 2% for you. You would be in a lot of trouble. And that's why it's so important for us to be willing to pour out ourselves more to God than just our time together in the assembly. And so uh, we can visit those in need, James one twenty-seven to visit the widows and orphans in their distress. We can spend other time with brethren. You know, uh, Hebrews 10.25, to encourage one another and all the more as the day draws near, uh, stirring up one of the 11 good works in verse 24 is not something restricted to certain assembly times. We can be doing that and should be doing that far more often than just when we come together uh, in the assembly. We also are to sacrifice with our material possessions. Uh, It's not just about our time. Uh, we have been uh, given the example of the early church where all the Christians were together in Jerusalem and they shared all things in common uh, because there was such a great need. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 9, Galatians 2.10 and 6.10, we've been commanded to give for the purposes of God in the local church and also to help those who are in need as we have opportunity. And a good question about our giving in terms of are we really sacrificing? Are we suffering the loss of? And this has been a constant challenge, right? In Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, a widow comes by and there's this huge, um, you know, the, the treasury there, people throwing money into the treasury to the giving to the purposes there. And there's a lot going on on the social political level. But let's look at that widow. And that widow by her faith, gives a penny, all she has to live on. And everybody else has put in all of this extra money, right? And, and Jesus wants to point out the faith of that widow. And when he points out the faith of that widow he's kind of indicting the whole system because the treasury should be helping to provide for her and her needs not her giving up all that she has to give to that but what's commended there is that she's given all that she's had to live on and everybody else has given out of their largesse they're not giving to her they should so we don't want to miss that widow's faith and what that widow is doing she is throwing herself on god she is truly sacrificing in a way that others are not. And that's also something, you know, in Malachi chapter 1 verses 7 and 8, uh, God has a complaint against his people that they're not bringing their best, that when they bring animals to offer, they're not bringing um, holistic, you know, healthy animals are bringing the sick, the lame, and all these other things. In fact, uh, Malachi sarcastically asks, take these animals to your governor, will he be satisfied with them? And that's the thing, it's a very easy temptation to want to prioritize our needs and then give what's left over. And if that's our mentality, we're not really glorifying God because we're not giving out of our abundance. We're giving out of our poverty, out of, our, out of the less of what we have. And we are not really suffering loss. Uh, there's a lot of conversation that goes on about how much you should give to the church or to others and whatever and whatnot. And much is made out of the tithe ironically, when you look in the Old Testament, the tithe ends up being something like 23% by the time you do 10% to the to, uh, the Levites, 10% uh, to, to to God, some shekels and here and that and, and other things you're supposed to give. It's over 10%. But let's even just stick with 10%. It's very easy to make 10% kind of the, this is the guideline that you should use. Uh, when we look in passages like 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you learn that the Macedonians uh, are giving far beyond 10%. That they're That given beyond their means where they are giving so much that it's starting to hurt them and they are feeling the the the, the difficulty again this is not an appeal to throw out so much money that you can't provide for yourself and your, and your own that's not what we're suggesting here but what we're suggesting is, is that by even thinking about it in terms of what kind of percentage what is the least i can do and god will still be satisfied shows that our hearts not in it and we are not really uh, connected to connected love of god about this that we should be wishing we could give more and that the percentage that we should give, uh, 10% might be considered a minimum uh, if we look at it in the grand scheme of things, that we should try to find ways of giving out of of that uh, abundance of what God has given us and to celebrate that and not to give miserly uh, just to kind of satisfy. Yes, yes, Paul says that God wants a cheerful giver. It's not supposed to be begrudgingly. Uh, If so, if we're going to begrudge how much you're giving, you shouldn't give it. But again, that gets back to the mentality involved. Are we looking at this as God has loved me and has given so much for me, so I want to give to him and to what he wants me to give to? Or are we trying to be hoarding on to what we have, like, all right, I'll give this much, I'll give this much because I have to. Very different mentalities involved. We need to be careful about that. And there's a lot of other ways that we can talk about sacrifice. And it all goes back to suffering the loss of things for God. And really, we're going through the rest of this. We're going to see how that plays out in many ways. And he calls this your logike latreia in Greek. And we use that logike latreia because literally, it would be rational service, which seems a strange thing to say here. Uh, Logike does mean rational. Logic is the word from that. Uh, Logos is a related word for the word. And so it's that rational or reasonable. And with this verse and in 1 Peter 2 and verse 2, what is the reasonable type of service you're supposed to be giving? Well, it's the spiritual one. So spiritual is kind of an expansive kind of interpretive translation but it's an appropriate translation for us to understand what the idea is. Latreia um, translated in English standard is worship, and there's a lot of translations heading toward making Latreia worship. And it's not that that's a wrong translation, since the English word worship can include uh, spirit, uh, acts of service done in honor of, of God. Um, but a lot of times it can create confusion because uh, that you also have worship as prostration or bowing down before God. Uh, the English word has become very expansive in meaning, and so it covers both of those domains, but in Greek they're very separate. Uh, The word here, uh, Latreia, is what ends up being used to refer in Romans 9 verse 4 and Hebrews 9 verse 1 to ministration, so like what the Levites are doing in the temple, all of those kinds of acts of service. Uh, That's kind of the idea there of Latreia, and so it's ministration. And we could use this as spiritual ministration, or the reasonable ministration considering what God has done for you in Jesus. And so that sacrifice is our spiritual service. And one another, one of the unfortunate uh, tendencies that's now taken place in Christianity is that that word worship has been so associated with the assembly that people kind of have created that the assembly is worship and worship is the assembly. And the fact of the matter is that when it comes to the you know prostration worship uh, that you get from so many passages in the in the Old and New Testament, that that is not going on in the assembly. Um, we we don't see that written in in the scriptures. The kind of uh, worship going on in the assembly is this latreia, It's this ministration. It's this encouragement that gets that gets done when we come together and do the acts of the assembly. And it's good and it's important and and we shouldn't discount its value. But when we go out of the assembly and encourage one another or do good for those in need or uh, embody Jesus to people, that is also latreia. That's also service. That's also in that sense, worship. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, the big fights going on in the church in so many places about, no, worship is something that's a one-time act, it's not things, various things you do in life, it is only looking at one half of what worship is because it's looking at the whole prostration thing going on. Um, when we have this expanded word, we have to realize there's expanded meanings. And so, uh, if we're going to use that word, worship, we need to realize it does refer to people bowing down before a superior as much as it refers to the acts of service done uh, to glorify God. And so it's gonna go in multiple different directions. Or we can just use the words prostration or to prostrate or to render obeisance if you like that better and use the word uh, to serve or service. And we can clear a lot of that up. And so this is to serve and service and it's something that should be marking our lives at all times and that's really the challenge. That when you reduce worship to the assembly, it makes it all the more easy once you get out of the assembly to think that you've done your work and you're good. Whereas the point that Paul has that Jesus has embodied and that all the apostles are trying to get across is once you become a child of God in Christ, you're constantly expending yourself for Jesus. It's not just a thing you can categorize in one box over here on Sunday and then go on with the rest of your life. It needs to inform the way that you live the rest of the time. And so, Uh, we need to be doing spiritual service on Sunday mornings. We need to be doing spiritual service on Sunday evenings and on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as well. There is a constant work we are to do in spiritual ministration. And our righteousness, our evangelism, faithfulness, all of these things are how we go and work as these spiritual ministers serving as that living sacrifice that is glorifying God. He then takes a shift here in verse 2. What does this sacrifice require? What does it start looking like? And so in verse 2, it begins by, do not be conformed to this world. And so he begins with what we avoid. What is conformity? Conformity, in Webster, is to give the shape, same shape, outline, or contour to, to bring into harmony or accord. And so very easily is to conform to the world, to take the form of the world. So when you think of conform, is to take the shape of, take the form of the world. What is the world? Well, we are in a sense already shaped in the world. We are living creatures made of this creation who eat and drink and sleep just like you see other creatures doing. Uh, That's not what Paul is getting at. He's not suggesting that we are somehow going to depart from a physicality. Like 1 John chapter 2, he's using the world here to talk about the Lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. All of those sinful impulses, all of those demonic forces, or perhaps human impulses that are very easily corrupted toward ungodly ends. And so we're not to take the shape of how the passions and desires of humanity have been warped for ungodly ends. We are not to be shaped and formed by the powers and principalities that are working to contrary to God's purposes. We're not to be shaped and conformed by the powers existing in this world. Well, how do we do that? Well, the basic thing is we don't do the same things the way the world does them. So we are light in the darkness, like John wants to tell us in 1 John 1, 4 through 10. It looks like being the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the city set on a hill. In Matthew 5, 13 through 16, it means that people will see the good works that we're doing in glorifying our God who is in heaven. That is what that looks like. And it means that we bring our Christianity into the world. And we do not bring the world into our Christianity. So as we're confronted with all kinds of ideas out in the world, and these ideas might take a liberal political slant, it may take a conservative political slant. Uh, It might be a culture of resisting the way culture is, it might be the culture, the predominant culture, in which we find ourselves. Uh, We should not allow the cultural forces to shape our faith, but allow our engagement with cultural forces to be shaped by our faith. If we are in education, we don't necessarily bring our secular education to Christianity, but we bring how we serve Jesus into how we are educated and how we educate. Uh, if we are in business, we do not take whatever is the best business practice going on and allow that to shape our faith. Instead, we bear witness to what God has accomplished in Christ in how we do business. And that might mean that we're not as, quote unquote, competitive. It might mean that we are taken advantage of more, perhaps. It might It might mean a lot of things But it means that we treat people the way that God would have us to treat them, and we can't just treat them harshly or the way everybody else treats them and say, well, that's just business. Likewise, we don't necessarily bring our entertainment into Christianity, but we allow our Christianity to shape how we look at our entertainment. And perhaps more important than anything versus what kind of entertainment to choose, what lessons we take from our entertainment need to be shaped by what we understand from our faith and to take what is good and dispense with what is evil, across the board. And really, every relationship that we have, every, every engagement we have in the world, gets established by the standard. We must allow our faith to inform our posture and not allow these forces in the world to shape our faith. So, we need to, in our friendships, in our family relationships, uh, and, and amongst uh, spouses and children, or parents and friends, that we are embodying Jesus to them, and they see Jesus in us, in how we relate to them. And that's also going to be true of our education and our work and all these other things that we mentioned, that we're bringing our faith to bear on those things, and that people will see our faith in those things. We don't have to beat them over the head with it. It's not how Jesus did it, but they will see that there's something different about us, something, uh, some kind of light that they don't see otherwise. Uh, that just you're anchored and you've got support in ways that others don't have. And they will be given reason to glorify God for that. All right, so we're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to take the shape of this world. We're not to allow the world to shape us. Then what should we be doing? Well, we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And doing this, we are are discerning what is the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. What does that mean? To be transformed is the Greek word metamorphosis. And you've probably come across the idea of metamorphosis. If you remember from biology class, uh, metamorphosis was most easily demonstrated uh, by the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. You know, you've got a caterpillar, which really, honestly, is not a very attractive little worm, right? Well, uh, when it's eaten enough plant matter, it then kind of puts itself in that cocoon and it pupates. And what comes out is a beautiful butterfly, right? Uh, What you start with is not what you end with. And so we are to have that same kind of transformation that what might not be so aesthetically pleasing uh, goes to this transformation to become something beautiful in the sight of God. And the way that transformation happens is by the renewing of our minds. Renewing is the Greek word anakinosis, which means to renew, to renovate a complete change for the better. So we have to look at our mind as one of those, you know, house projects, right? You see them a lot on television where you got a house and it might be a little dated and it needs updating or it's got maybe a decent structure but it needs to have a lot of work and in the worst case scenario you just gotta start all over again and build new and there's that process by which it has to be completely transformed so that it's a dwelling place suitable for God through the Spirit, right? And so that's the process that we are to go through and so Notice that it's gonna to have to start in the mind, which is the way repentance works, and then is manifest in our actions. So what kind of changes is that gonna look like? How do we uh, renew our minds, go through that process of repentance so that we can be that, thus transformed, discerning in the will of God what is acceptable and good and perfect? Well, notice that we do that by testing, right? We have to do it. This is not a mere intellectual act- exercise. Far too often, we've treated the faith as something we can sit around in a class and instill by saying a lot of good words and having good banter. Uh, That's not to say there's no value in sitting around and talking about principles, but the faith was never merely academic. The expectation throughout is that it's something that you learn by doing. Um, That's why Jesus didn't just sit around and provide abstract principles to the disciples. He had them follow him as he did these things, and he sent them out to do them themselves. That's why the Hebrews author says that those who are mature are the ones who have their powers of discernment trained through constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That we come to understand the will of God not just by sitting around in an academic setting and and studying, uh, not just by sitting around and praying, but by actually going out and doing things. And again, that's not to dismiss the value of prayer or to dismiss the value of study, but to realize that study and prayer need to be made part of a more holistic program in which we are living the faith. And as we live the faith, we will gain insight and understanding through the practice of the faith. And that is why so many times we focus on what you do. We no longer accomplish the works of the flesh. We manifest it through the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, but really... The rest of the chapter and really the rest of the book is kind of commentary on what does it look like to have your mind transformed and renewed and no longer being conformed to this world. Well, you begin by not to think more highly than you ought to think of yourself, that you have that humility in verse 3 that you participate in the body of Christ, that you recognize you are a member of the body of Christ and that you are connected to other members. So you have your independent function, but you also function interdependently with other Christians. And then uh, you have the need for love to be genuine, to abhor what is evil, to cling to what is good, to outdo one another, showing honor to one another, to rejoice in hope, contribute to the needs of the saints, show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, associate with the lowly, don't repay anybody evil for evil, but um, live peaceably with all. Uh, Don't seek vengeance, Uh, if somebody uh, uh, is seeking to hurt you, uh, that's not the way forward, do not be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good, honor and respect civil authority. Uh, consider all the laws but owe nothing to anyone except to love that the one who loves has fulfilled that law and to understand the time is coming that the day of salvation is, is closer than when we first believed and that we need to stop doing the things of darkness but to do the things of the light. Uh, To put on the Lord Jesus, make no provision to gratify the desires of the flesh. When it comes to disputes among us about things that don't matter, matters of food and drink, uh, that we consider the needs of others more important than ourselves. That those who don't think that they have the ability to do something shouldn't condemn those who do, and those who do shouldn't try to impose it on those who don't. And that we understand that we're all serving Jesus, we're all going to stand or fall before Jesus. um, And that we should not destroy God's work uh, because of food that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak because Jesus did not please himself, uh, but their approaches who fell upon you fell on me, that what we have in the scriptures was written, that we would have instruction, that through endurance and encouragement from them we might have hope, and that we will be able to persevere. And we could go on and on and on. All of these things, and you see constant theme, right? Manifest humility. Display love. What does that love look like? It looks like sacrifice, like we've already mentioned. Seek the interest of the other. Don't put your own needs, your own insecurities, own anxieties first. Set those aside that you can truly love somebody else. All of these things come out of what it means to no longer be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and that comes back to looking like that living and holy sacrifice. So we go back to what now, right? Our question that we began with, what now? We're now Christians, what now? Now we are to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That means that we are to put ourselves up on that altar as a living and holy sacrifice, constantly pouring ourselves out for God and his purposes as God did for us. That we are not going to be shaped by the way of the world anymore but we're going to allow our minds to be transformed by that renewal, by testing and discerning what the will of God is by certainly studying it in Scripture and praying, but by doing, by demonstrating that humility, by exhibiting that love, by considering the needs of others as more important than ourselves, by looking for those opportunities to encourage one another in the church and to give to those who are in need to show hospitality, all of these things are what now we are doing. And as we do those things, we become more like God in Christ. We share in greater connection with God in Christ and with his people. And we are ever more ready and looking forward and prepared for that day when the Lord will return and we'll be able to share with him in the resurrection of life and to enjoy his presence and peace and joy for all eternity. We so eagerly look for that day and let us all, therefore, be these living holy sacrifices. Let us all do all that we can to no longer be shaped to this world, transform ourselves, to demonstrate the will of God in our lives, embody Jesus, and glorify him. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for the blessings you've given us of life, Father. We're thankful that you love and care for us, that you have considered us, and that you have demonstrated your covenant loyalty toward us in so many ways. We're thankful for Jesus, and for the love you've shown us in him, the sacrifice he offered for our sins, for the hope of resurrection that we maintain in him and for the participation that we have together in your kingdom. And we're thankful for that joint participation and the encouragement we can provide one another. We're thankful for all the material blessings and spiritual blessings you've given us in Jesus. We're mindful of all those who are affected by uh, illness. We pray that you would heal them. We pray that you would comfort and strengthen those in deep distress and in mourning. We pray that justice and righteousness be done in our land and that you would be with all people, especially those of authority, that we may be able to uh, live in peace and to serve and glorify you. We pray that you provide for all those who are in need that and to preserve life in the face of disaster and distress. Father, we pray that we would be strengthened to no longer be shaped to this world, but that you would give us that. Transformed heart and mind that we would pursue your ways and to glorify you. We pray that you would give us the strength to pour ourselves out to be the living and holy sacrifices for you that we ought to be. We pray that we would ever grow closer to you and that we would turn away from the ways of the world. And that we would demonstrate the love among one another, and that we would serve you always, and that we would joyfully, continuously pour ourselves out for others as you have poured yourself out for us, and that you would constantly fill us, that we would constantly pour ourselves out again for others. And we pray that we would have the strength to persevere and do this until your Son returns, and we pray eagerly for that day to come that we can share in the life with you forever. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're so glad that you've joined us today. Thank you again. Love to hear what you think. What now? How can we live the Christian life? What does Romans 12, 1 and 2 teach us about the Christian life? And how can we encourage you? How can we pour ourselves out for you? Please let us know in the comments where you found us. Subscribe to us. Please reach out to us at our website, AvengersChrist.org, and on social media. Uh, We want to pray for you. We want to be of encouragement to you. We'd love if you're in the Los Angeles area for you to join with us that we can uh, really get to know you and love you as as Jesus loves you and loves us and that we can work together to accomplish his purposes and may the Lord bless and keep you until we are able to meet again.